Well, let's get going. Welcome all. Uh, to begin, we have one PSA that, um, I don't know if this was communicated to you or not. Oh, let's pray first. Thank you, Mike. That was a good, let's, let's be pious and pray. Please rise in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe. Pray for us. Father and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for the reminder. Um, one PSA is that this is actually going to be our final class of the year. will be tonight. We had planned to do an extra one, but... With the way the week before Christmas is shaping up, uh, I don't know why we planned on it in the first place, but we did. Um, but we're going to not do it, because tonight we're going to get through the rest of the Mass. Um, so we'll end tonight, and we will also end this evening with a generous um, portion for questions. And I want you to begin thinking of your questions now. You could ask me questions during you know, my lecture, pertaining to my lecture, but I want you to think uh, of questions that you have about the Mass about the church, about uh, architecture, about music, about anything that comes to mind. And it can be, in your head, they might seem like the most rudimentary or basic or silly questions, and I assure you that they're not, and there's probably a really good chance that someone else in the room has a question regarding that. Even if it seems like they must have covered this in week one or two, we probably didn't. And secondly, uh, it doesn't matter. Please ask questions, because the Mass is an internal, an eternal thing, like we've discussed again and again and again. And it's the everlasting fount of life that we draw our grace from constantly as Catholics, and therefore we can never exhaust it. And it's absolutely worth um, it's absolutely worth uh, going over again and again and again and again. So please start ruminating on those questions that you have, and we'll discuss it uh, those questions after we end tonight. So Mike last week left off um, with the priest saying, Domine nom sin dignus, within tre subtectum eum, citantum dic verbo, citamatana mea. He himself saying that, after he holds the host up and says, Ecce agnus dei, Ecce quitoli peccata mundi. He probably went over the fact that Ecce agnus dei is what John the Baptist says. This is what John the Baptist says when our Lord is coming to the river to be baptized, to the Jordan River to be baptized. John the Baptist, as a figure, does anyone know John the Baptist's title as a saint? Does anyone know what his title is? One of his titles? Yeah, do you know? He was a baptizer. Very good. That's what he, that was what he, exactly what he did. John the Baptist, does anyone else know what he, what, what a title that he had? Yeah. He was Jesus' cousin as well. Excellent. Good. He is called, the church calls him the forerunner the forerunner, because he goes ahead and prepares a way for our Lord. He's, he's the voice crying out in the desert, make way, this, make straight the paths of the Lord. Um, he, was, he, he is in Isaiah's prophecy thousands of years before. And the reason why he's the forerunner is because um, you also can see this from the gospel readings throughout Advent. Just, pretty much John the Baptist, his, his moments of glory in the, in the church's liturgy are in the season of Advent. At least in the... Um, in the old mass, which we're going over, for the I think the second, third, and fourth got Sundays, all those gospels have to do with John the Baptist in some way or another. He's such a prominent figure in Scripture, and he was so prominent that people kept mistaking him for our Lord. They kept asking that question: "Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Are you Elias? Are you the Christ? Who are you?" 
And he said, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. That was the gospel from last Sunday. Um, and then the second two Sundays ago, our Lord, our Lord, people are asking him about John the Baptist. And he says, who do you go out to the wilderness to see? Who do you go into the wilderness to see? So people kept mistaking him. But then our John the Baptist also says that beautiful line that we should all be praying constantly, that line, he must increase and I must decrease, pointing to our Lord. He must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist also is a great figure in Advent because does anyone know when John the Baptist is born? What day do we celebrate his nativity? Anybody? In the liturgical year, any guesses? If our, Let me give you a little... Yes, Blake. June 24th. And what is, what is the significance of June 24th? Why is John the Baptist born? Why do we, why do we celebrate his nativity on June 24th? Yes. Good, it's six months before Christmas. And why six months... Where do we get that six months from? Yeah, we're getting there, Mike. Don't steal my thunder. Um, what was it? Yes, Mary went to see your sister, and it says, it's, it's essentially, it's calculated that he's, he's six months, so Elizabeth and, uh, and Zechariah, the, they miraculously conceived John the Baptist six months before, before the Annunciation, right? Six months, sorry, six months before, he's six months older than Christ, that's what I'm saying, <laughs> before the Annunciation. So um, they are six months apart. So June 24th, we celebrate the Nativity of John the Baptist. What happened, Mike already said it, which is lame, but what happens around June 24th? What happens around June 24th? No, the, what, uh, what, uh, what a celestial event. Summer solstice. Summer solstice. Thank you, Darren. Yes, so the summer solstice, so it usually falls around June 21st, 22nd, we celebrate around then. The summer solstice being the longest day of the year. And it's the axis in which the whole liturgical calendar sits on, because after that point, the days get shorter and shorter and shorter. So here in Michigan, we have the glorious part of being in, in, in this part of Michigan because we're still in the eastern time zone. And so we get those glorious summer days in June where you can be fishing out till 10 o'clock at night, right? The sun is just going and it's just uh, those are the, the high days of summer, right? And then as you go on and go on and on and on, those nights get darker and darker and darker. And then when the, the masters of the Enlightenment invented daylight savings time and they tried to control the sun, the, day get, the days get even darker after that, right? Which is an evil thing because it destroys liturgical timing. But it, uh, so as we go down through the age, through the year, our days get darker and darker and darker. And we think of the line, he must increase and I must decrease. And when does the winter solstice come? Right around December 21st, all right, which is St. Thomas. But right around the Feast of Our Lord's Nativity, all right? So they, the 24th and the 24th create this axis of light that the whole liturgical calendar sits on. So as we proceed towards the nativity, towards, the, towards Christmas, the light of Christ is becoming short, lighter and lighter and lighter, and that sun, which we recognize at the height of John the Baptist, has decreased, 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 decreased. Isn't that awesome? How the, 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 the cosmic realities, the historic realities, the liturgical realities all line up. And so just like we can meditate on Our, on our Lady's uh, pregnancy from March 25th all the way to December 25th, her growing more and more, becoming more and more magnified with our Lord um, uh, and, and all that she had to endure as she became more and more pregnant with our Lord. Um, we also can meditate on the fact that John the Baptist, his light is decreasing as he prepares the way for Jesus, which we're about to receive, you know, see our Lord in, in less than two weeks, right? So, the Ecce Anustei, uh, which Mike went over last week, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. That is a very Adventian, if that's a word, um, 
idea, and it prepares us for this intimate, intimate meeting with the Lord in the Holy, at, at, at Holy Communion. Um, so John the Baptist plays a forerunner's role there. And who receives, who, uh, who is being quoted when we say, oh Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter into my roof? Who says that in Holy Scripture? The centurion, right? And the centurions play a really funny role in the Gospels because they're these Roman centurions, right? They're these soldiers. And you can kind of think of, you know, this is, we're in, you know, first century Palestine and the Romans, this is the far reaches of the Roman, king, the Roman Empire and these, um, sort of the, the Jews are living sort of under a Roman martial law. So you have these soldiers, just they, they're just around. And our Lord doesn't ignore them even though he's constantly... Uh, dialoguing with the Pharisees and, and with the, the people of the streets and with the, uh, with, with the Sumerians and all of these, um, and, and Gentiles, with Syrophoenician women, with all these people, these centurions are always just there. And whenever we involve a centurion in the, whole, in the scriptures, they're always men of like, like really odd, profound faith, right? So that happens, isn't that with Jairus' daughter? Isn't that, the, um, isn't that the centurion's count when he's asking for his, his child to be resurrected? And, and uh, he asks in faith and trusts that God is going to heal. You're not worthy to come to my house, under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And it says at that very moment, the centurion's daughter was healed. Where else do we see the centurion in the gospel? We see it a couple places, but most significantly, where do we see the centurion's role? In the crucifixion, right? And what does the centurion do with the crucifixion? Yes, he takes the lance, right? He takes the holy lance and puts it up through the, we talked about at the very beginning of this class, right? How that's the opening in the altar rail. It's, it, that's the side of Christ, Lateris Christi, right? That the centurion opens up and he believes, he believes because he, see, he, he sees that this man is the Christ. And, and how could you not when, when the sacraments pour out of him, when blood and water pour out of him? You constantly see him in all the great tableau, uh, crucifixion tableaus of the artists, right? You see the centurion there with, with the holy lance. Um, so centurions are fascinating. We take the role of the centurion um, as John the Baptist speaks to us, we take the role of the centurion. Lord, I am not worthy that you enter into my roof. Good. So then the priest communes. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The priest's communion is distinct from our own communion. And why is that? Why is that? He yeah, so he receives both species. He receives both species of, of our Lord. That is, that's why it's distinct. It's distinct in that way. Um, whereas we do, it, it should be known that in receiving the host that we all receive at communion, most of us all receive at communion, um, we are receiving both the body, blood, soul, and divinity of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we are receiving all of communion in that host. But yes, as Christians said, we are um, receiving, uh, the, the priest uh, eats both uh, the body and the blood of our Lord directly in the species that they're representing in the species. Um, where, how else is it distinct? Maybe, maybe he self communicates, right? He, it's very important. He self communicates. Um, let's actually get into that, Darren. Thank you for that because let's go through just how he self communicates and then talk about this idea more. All right. So um, in your packets, in your in your ordos, these guys. I'm on page. Um, 21, everybody, I'm on page 21. And when you're at Mass, when you're at the traditional Mass, I'm on page 21 of the Ordo. Page 20, at the very, very bottom, where it says, He receives the host. Everyone see that? 
page 21. When we're entering in, when the priest is communing, you will know it, because we should be, we should be, we'll talk about this, we should be ordering our prayers to his prayers at this moment. You'll know it because the three sanctus bells ring three, three times. You'll hear them. Dilililing, dilililing, dilililing. And they ring when Father is saying, Dominum Sindunus, Dominum Sindunus, Dominum Sindunus. And he's striking his breast. Why do they ring three times? The Trinity. <laughs> Everything is the Trinity, as Mike and I have brought up again and again. Everything is Trinitarian. Three times. Also, think about the other three. Is there another um, threefold confession in the Gospels that you can think of? Peter, yes. Peter, on the, when, they're having, when, they're, when they're having breakfast on the banks after they see the resurrected Lord. Uh, uh, feed, feed, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, right? Three times. Notice how the three, those three full answers of the Mass, how personal it is. It's one thing to address God, which we can't. But in the Mass, we're always addressing each person that God has. Yes. It's personal. Constantly. It's personal. It's personal. Relationship with God is personal. You have to address all three persons. Yes. And actually, there's a wonderful, if um, any of you um, have read, um, have been consecrated to Jesus through Mary, the, the Louis de Montfort uh, program, um, he talks about in his book uh, on consecrated, being consecrated to Jesus through Mary, he talks about how the prayers that he subscribed to that part of the Mass, um, you're supposed to uh, pray to the three persons of the Holy Trinity as they relate to the Mother of God. So he says, when the first Dominion Sidinus is said, he says, pray to God, who is the Heavenly Father of, our, of the Blessed Mother, and then pray to the Son, who is the Son of the Blessed Mother, and then pray to the Holy Spirit, who is the, the Heavenly Spouse of the Blessed Mother, right? So it's that, and that's, that's just the Mount Force formula, but there's all sorts of, of formulas for praying the Mass through, through Our Lady, through other saints, through various aspects of the passion, and they all come down to that Trinitarian formula again and again and again. So yes, three times, and so you'll hear the bells ring. Sometimes the choir, if they're singing a longer Agnus Dei, they'll still be singing the Agnus Dei as the bells go, dilililing, especially if it's a quick celebrant like Father Ron. Um, he'll begin the dilililing, dilililing, dilililing. You'll hear them all the choir singing, um, which is really, it's a cool overlap. I really enjoy it when, we, when that happens. Um, except when it distracts my singers, uh, and then, then, then that's a problem. Um, so, uh, excellent. So, um, when the priest is communing, what he does in this situation is, um, he, uh, th- this, this bottom prayer on page 21, Corpus Domini Nostri Jesu Christi, custodiat anima meam in vitam internam, amen. May the body of our Lord Jesus Christ keep my soul into everlasting, into life everlasting, Amen. At this moment, what he does is he crosses himself. He crosses himself with, with the paten and the host, all right? So the paten being the little golden plate, right, that the, that the host sits on. He crosses himself with this. And again, there's a rich symbolism here of, of, of I, I want you to think of it as he's, he's, he's taking on that flesh. He's taking on our Lord's body. It's really a it, it's it's it, we, the the word the language of the church is it's it's a consummation right it's it's and this is something that the priest alone can do this is why he can, he himself can self 
uh, what was the term you used, Darren? Self, self-communicate, yes, exactly. Self-administer the sacraments to himself. Because he, at this moment, being in persona Christi, is the great high priest. And so he crosses himself with the Eucharist. How profound. He doesn't do this in the Mass, except here, right? He, cry, I guess he, may, he might do it once in the canon. Um, I don't want to say that. But he does it, this is a very intimate moment where he crosses himself with the host. And then he bows reverently before it, and it's on the patent, and he, and he, and he receives our Lord's body off of that patent. And then he genuflects before it, all right? How intimate. But he takes on our Lord in crossing himself before receiving it. Yes? Yeah, right. I want to make sure we as a class understand that that, that communion, that self-communion of the priest, does so in persona priesthood. Yeah. So that incarnational sacramental reality is present. Our Lord and Savior is, is through this Mass extending the redemptive sacrifice through time. And so, yes. so those, those symbols, the bowing, the Crossing, our Albert signs to us that Jesus now is truly, truly making the fruit of his work available to us. And as, as Father said a few weeks ago, without the priest doing that, the, the Mass is not efficacious. It's, we need Christ to complete the work. Yes. And he does it in persona priesthood. And that's what. I, the and this is why it's distinct. This is why the priest's communion is distinct from our own communion. Our communion. As we get to it, we can see as an extension of the priest's communion. It's an extension of our Father's communion, which is beautiful. Um, but the priest is the proper recipient of that. Without communing, without himself receiving the body and blood of our Lord, it's, a, it's, it's uh, what was the term Father used? Was it invalid or was it? I think it is essentially invalid. It's not effective at all. There's no, there's no effect because it's not properly received. And Father, the celebrant, is the, is the proper recipient of that gift, uh, that gift of self-donation. Yes? So, at communion service, when there's not consecration, is that, um, I guess, where does that play in? It's a great question. Um, so that is, the, the priest has already, this is why it's distinct, because the priest has already received that consecrated host at a prior time. And what, it's, what, what a communion service is, is, is an extension of the people's communion outside of Mass. So the Mass that has consecrated that host, that ciborium, all of that, that, that has happened at a place where that, that sacrament has been already consummated, has already been ratified, and then uh, they extend it outside of Mass. Um, usually, traditionally, communion services, or times of communion, like there was, historically, going back some centuries, um, that, that was actually a common practice for the laity was that um, mass would go on and the priest would receive communion and this, so therefore the sacrifice would be completed and then they would commune the congregation after the mass actually ended, after the clergy had left. They would then receive, the communion would come up. Another priest even would come up and um, turn to them and still say, Echionius Dei, Quitoli Picata Mundi, do that whole thing and then would commune the people outside of mass um, you still see it sometimes. It's still, it's still possible. Um, 
I remember when I went to a, a music conference. Uh, where we, yeah, with the sick, right? Yes, exactly. With, with, um, when you receive uh, last uh, Holy Communion as sick or the viaticum, right? It's the exact same thing. It's, it's still an extension out of the priest's communion that he already did at a, at a, at a separate time. So this is where you have to kind of begin thinking outside of time a little bit there. Um, it's probably, it's, it's, it's most clearly, a f- I think the mysteries are clearest when communion, you can disagree, maybe Mike will disagree with me. I think the mysteries are clearest when communion happens within the Mass. Um, but it's, again, it's within the church's power to commune the, commune the people outside is of there, Mass. Is there a communion right outside of Mass in the preconciliar missile? Yes, because that's, that's what I was saying. So it was actually very common that you would, especially they, because they wanted to keep Masses efficient. If you're doing a high solemn Mass, they can be very long. And especially if you have big, uh, the, the situations I'm uh, thinking about is when um, they had big, grandiose musical settings, and the music setting would take so long that they just wanted to keep communion outside of mass just to keep that mass could be done. But the communion rite... Yeah, it's a simplified word of the sick. And the communion rite is pretty much, if you take, after the priest's communion, and you take a big chopping block, and you take and you go from the priest turning to the people and saying, Etchianus Day, it's pretty much that. Etchianus Day, the servers, I think, I'm going shooting from the hip here, the servers will say, Confideor, will say, I confess to Almighty God. So they are... They are prepared, They are representing the, the people. Are there's a there's a confidior that's said you know before you receive holy communion, um, so you confess your sins and the venial ones are uh, absolved, and then you receive holy communion. Um, and you see it a lot. You know, I went to a music conference once where we did a lot of um, wonderful Latin masses, and there were like a bunch of us, 40, 50 of us, and singing in the choir. You know, and so. And it was a very tight little church, and so there was no way that the choir could efficiently go and receive communion. Because you'll see when my troops <laughs> come down before Mass and we take up the whole altar rail. It's a good problem to have. Um, but a lot of times, uh, when you have especially a very, very big choir, there's just no time to move the choir through and then also for the choir to sing all of its re- requisite music. Um, and so uh, a lot of times, at those kind of, when we had to sing at those big music conferences, we sang Mass, we would go down as a choir afterwards. Mass would end... And the priest would come out, and he'd go to the tabernacle, he'd kneel before the tabernacle. They actually would ring a bell or a clapper and say, everyone kneel, because the Lord's about to be exposed. He'd turn around and say, you stay. He'd come down, we'd, we'd kneel at the altar, just like communion, receive communion, just like that. So it happens in both forms of the Mass. Uh, it's, it's a common thing. Let me not, I wouldn't say common, but it's, uh, it's, it's licit and occurs. So great question. Um, look here, so I'm turning the page now to 22. Um, um, in between the priest's reception of uh, the body of our Lord and the blood of our Lord, in between his reception, there's this beautiful prayer, the Quid Retribuam, which is at the very top of 22. Now, I want you to give you a context for this prayer. While he is praying this, the priest has his patent, and he is purifying the patent, meaning he is making sure that there's no extant crumbs on the patent, crumbs of our Lord, of the host, and he does this over the chalice, all right? So here's our Lord's blood, and he's taking those crumbs, if there are any, off the host, and he's making sure he's cleaning them over the chalice so that any crumbs would fall into the chalice. So again, it, it, there's no, it, it's, it's like that, and that's such a cool image, I think. I think of the Lord, you know, that, that so many times in Scripture we have this idea of the, the, the cup of the chalice of the Lord brimming over either with mercy or brimming over with wrath, right? <laughs> Both of those kind of being two sides of the same coin. Um, 
in terms of providence, and, and it's like the, the, the body of our Lord is being taken up into that blood of the chalice. It's profound, but that's, what the, that, that's the context, what he's doing while he's praying this prayer. Priests do a lot. <laughs> he has to do a lot while all this is going on that we don't see. And he says, What shall I render unto the Lord for all the things he has rendered unto me? I will take the chalice of salvation and will call upon the name of the Lord. With high, pra- with high praises will I call upon the name of the Lord, and I shall be saved from mine enemies. He is, this is a direct quoting of the 115th Psalm and the 17th Psalm. Right? This directly comes from the Psalter. Nothing else. It is directly from the Psalter. Uh, in some, some modern editions of the Catholic Bible, this will be Psalm 116 and Psalm 118. Sorry, sorry, 116 and 18, respectively. Um, I should make a note of that. So if you want, um, if you're using a uh, modern, if you're using like a um, Revised Standard Version or a uh, New American Bible, um, it's going to be Psalm um, 116 and 18. If you're, in the, if you're using a Douay Rams Version, the, the older version of the Catholic Bible, it's going to be 115 and, one, uh, 115 and 16, so just a number before. Uh, that's a great question to ask me afterwards, why that's the case. Uh, but don't ask me now. Um, um, so it's directly quoting from the Psalms. And um, this is an encouragement to all of you, as I, as I, think, you'll ho- I think you'll begin doing after the, as a fruit of this class, Lord willing, is that you'll begin seeing and reading the Scriptures liturgically and also sacramentally, right? And the Psalms are the greatest, I think, some of the greatest fodder for that. It's the, the, the greatest things to chew upon. Because when you read the Psalms, when you pray the Psalms, if you pray the Liturgy of Hours, the Divine Office, at the Mass, or just reading the Scriptures in your own time, as your own prayer, you see a phrase like that, I will take the chalice of salvation and will call upon the name of the Lord. And you see it as Eucharistic. Most properly, it is Eucharistic. I don't think there's any higher interpretation than that. Would you say that so, Mike? I mean, it's, it's the highest... Like I said, reading everything through the Paschal Mystery... That is a Eucharistic idea. Think about our Lord uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, may this chalice pass from me. You know, that's the, the chalice of our Lord's wrath, the chalice of our Lord's blood, right? It's in the Psalms. It's prefigured in the Psalms. And it's prayed liturgically as, uh, as the Eucharistic reality. It's beautiful. Yes. 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 Is ratified. Yes, a shared the shared chalice. Yes. And we'll call upon the name of the Lord. It's being given to me. Yes. And so it's prayed here by the priest. And also that whole idea of what shall I render? Opening up with that question, what shall I give into the Lord? You see that that interrogation all throughout Scripture. The one that immediately comes to mind for me is. Um, um, open your Bibles to Micah 6. Micah, one of the minor prophets, near the, nearish the back of the Old Testament. Micah 6, 6 through 8. Oh, and, and the boiler uh, would like to read as well. Um, so, good. This is Micah 6, 6 through 8. What shall I offer to the Lord that is worthy? Wherewith shall I kneel before the high God? Shall I offer holocausts unto him and calves of a year old? 
May the Lord be appeased with thousands of rams or with many thousands of fat he-goats. Shall I give my firstborn for my wickedness, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I will show thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requireth of thee. Verily, to do judgment, to love mercy, and to walk solicitous with thy God. All right? Again, what I love about that passage is the opening of what shall I offer, right? What shall I give unto the Lord? And also, in, um, I also think of Psalm 50 or Psalm 51, if you're using an NAB or RSV Bible. Psalm 51, I'll just read it. This is the end of, this is the Miserere Psalm, one of the, the chief penitential psalms. For if, this is Psalm eight, uh, verse 18 of, of Psalm 50, 51. For if thou hadst desired sacrifice, I would indeed have given it. With burnt offerings thou wilt not be delighted. A sacrifice to God is an afflicted spirit, a contrite and humbled heart, O God, that will not despise. Deal favorably, O Lord, in thy good will with Zion, that the walls of Jerusalem may be built up. Then shalt thou accept the sacrifice of justice, oblations and whole burnt offerings. Then shall they lay thy calves upon thy altar. I think um, there's this idea in our liturgical theology um, of, of the holy sacrifice of the Mass being the satisfaction of the, cult, of the cultus in Latin, the cult. And this is the idea... Um, the cult being the sacrifice that God has always required of his people, beginning with uh, the, the Old Covenant, uh, beginning with Adam and, Adam and Eve, but of course being ratified, recodified, you could say, by Abraham, and then, and then eventually being satisfied by our Lord's sacrifice. And then that, that sacrifice, self-same sacrifice, being the holy sacrifice of the Mass, right? The cult is this idea, the cultist is this idea that, what, how, that, that throughout the Old Testament, our Lord both lays down meticulous instructions on how he should be worshipped in his temple, right? You look at Leviticus, you look at Numbers, you look at Deuteronomy. There's such rich, we've gone through some of this rich, rich detail in those books about how the Lord should be um, worshipped in his temple. And then when the temple is being built, you know, in the time of David, in the time of Solomon, again, the proportions of what the temple should be, um, the structure of the temple, how all these things should be, what... Um, uh, the positioning, the what kind of sacrifices, what kind of animals. Um, it goes on and on and on, you know, what days you can do certain things, how long do things have to be purified for. There's so much prefigurement of the Paschal Mysteries and of, of actually the sacrifice of the Mass in those books. But again and again, our Lord says, I would like it to be this way, I need it to be this way, I need the sacrifice to be this meticulous and this ordered. But then again and again, he also says in his Psalms, uh, a, a humble and contrite heart, O oh Lord, that will, that will not despise, right? He wants the heart as well. He needs both the law and man's heart. And so many times you see through um, the history of Israel, of the Old Testament, they had the law and they were celebrating the law, but they, give, they gave not God their hearts and their minds and their, and their will. They gave that to, to actually to idols, to false sacrifices, right? And so it's this constant tension in the Old Testament, where he, he demands the law of them, but he also demands their love and demands their heart. And as we see in Matthew 5, when, he, when our Lord says, I come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, that can only ever be fulfilled in the Lord, who is both the lawgiver and the prophet. What do the prophets do? The prophets called Israel back to uh, true worship of God with their hearts, with their minds, with their souls, and with their wills, Right? And, and the lawgivers gave the law. This is what we see in the transfiguration. We see Moses and we see Elijah. And who is in the middle? Who satisfies both of them? Our Lord and Savior. And so the constant tension of the Psalms is this constant, like we see in Psalm 50, like I said. Um, 
A sacrifice to God is an afflicted spirit, a contrite and humble heart, O God, that will not despise. And if you have that, therefore, then shalt thou accept the sacrifice of justice, oblations, and whole burnt offerings. Then, with my contrite heart, then shall I lay calves upon thy altar. It is satisfied. These two realities could never be satisfied. They can never be reconciled under the old covenant. But now, with our Lord Jesus Christ, they are, they are, they are satisfied and they are, they are brought into reconciliation with each other. And this is kind of, I, I, when, I look, when I see this prayer, quid retribuam, what shall I render unto the Lord for all the things he has done unto me? It speaks to me of that constant, what can I give to the Lord? What can I give to the Lord? What can I give to the Lord of the Old Testament? It's satisfied here. And this is all what is going on as Father, as Father cleans that patent uh, in, uh, over top of the chalice, right? And then we move on to him, his reception of the precious blood. The precious blood is received in the exact same way that the, um, that the host is received. He takes the chalice and he crosses himself with the chalice. You'll see this. Watch at Mass. He takes this, the chalice and he goes, he crosses himself before he receives it. Again, he's, um, the Lord is, 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 is imposing his blood on, on the priest. It's very profound. Just like in the Asperger's May, right? Just like in the Asperger's May from the very beginning of Mass. Now it's finally complete. He's imposing his blood on the priest and drinking of the chalice. Isn't that, it's, it's very profound. So that, but that prayer, those, the, the reception of the, of the host and the reception of the blood are um, the bookends to that wonderful prayer in the middle. I didn't want to miss that. Good. It's also important to know that the priest is the only one who receives communion. Yes. Co-mingled meaning uh, the bread being in the wine. Yes. That 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 notion that it's the body, blood, soul, and spirit of Jesus. Yes. But it's in this crucified and resurrected state. Yeah. And so, and and the priest in Priscilla Christi is the only one who receives from a chalice. Yes. And that whole mingling is a sign of the resurrection. And it, it, it's actually a unique aspect as Westerns, right? As Westerners, because um, if you go, like Father suggested, if you go to an Eastern Rite Catholic church, so our neighboring one is St. Michael's on Gold Avenue, about 10 blocks west, 10 blocks east of here, um, Lake Michigan, and it'd be like Lake Michigan and Gold. Uh, very small little parish, but they celebrate the, their Ukrainians, and so they celebrate the Eastern Rite. And you can go there and receive our Lord. It's, like I said, they are our brethren, entirely in uni- communion with us. Um, if you receive communion there, they have this sort of like spoon. I don't, it's not called a spoon, that's, but it's called something cooler than a spoon. But, uh, and then it, but it's, it's sort of this commingled. Um, it is commingled. It's, it's, both, it's both bread and wine of the Lord. It's both species commingled together. And then they kind of deposit it on your tongue that way. But as Westerners, it's only the priest who receives it commingled, and then we receive one of the species. Yes, sir. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Really. Were they having you do it? No, they did prior to. And the priest? Yeah, so 
in the in the Western rites, there is, and this is an important distinction, everybody. It's important that in the Roman rite, the priest is the only one who receives from the commingled chalice. He's the only one, and that's important as a sign, like we talked about last week, of the resurrection, because it's not just the crucified that they receive; he is risen from the dead. So that commingling is a sign of the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection obviously is extended to the lady by virtue of the communion. Yes. In the East, the East retains that reality by allowing everyone to receive communion of both species by Jonathan said spoon. It's, it's like a, when you go up for a communion, you receive standing, you open up your mouth for a while. You're way back, like, like the dentist. And, and the, the priest yeah. will, will spoon in, you know, some. Co Co-mingled something, so yeah. Like a <laughs> in the West, there is an option for a priest, but only a priest. Lawfully, a deacon can't do this, a lay person can't do this, and someone going up for communion cannot do this on their own. It's not listed. But a priest does have an option for a certain type of um, saboria that has a small chalice in the middle. And he can, he is permitted by law, if he desires, to place the host in the precious blood. Wow, I, yeah. And, 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 but the person is only by law allowed to receive in their mouth. And so it is, it's extremely rare. You rarely see um, this happen at all anymore. Um, but it's, it's called intinction. The host is intincted. It is dipped in the precious blood. Which is why you had to kneel for that one. Right. Because they, so, they require it on the tongue. A lot of times religious orders, monks, um, will receive this way. And, and they sort of retain it because in the West, after the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, they permitted communion in the hand. Um, and there's a number of very faithful religious orders that don't want to do communion in the hand. And so they've retained the ancient tradition of intention. So when you go to the religious houses, they <laughs> they intake it before you receive on the tongue. So it's a way of them circumventing some of the last. <laughs> uh, but it is permitted. I want to make sure if you're ever traveling somewhere where you see I, that, that that is yeah, it's I'd, extremely rare. Wow. Well, very rarely done. Well, you found a gem. That's great. There you go. I didn't know. I, I thought it was the only one I remember. What I was like. If it's the priest. If it's the priest. Yeah. yeah, and and of course, as you know, um, after the uh, in the new mass too, right? You can, um, if you we don't do it here as much, but if you go to another parish, um, they, they usually have, a priest will offer the blood to you as well, right? Um, so like you you we we you commune, you can commune in either species, um, or both. Can you commune both species usually? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that. I, yeah. They're kind of. Yeah, they're pretty novel. I have no shame in this being recorded, but nowhere in the history of the church do we have the lady communing twice in any tradition, whether east or west. Yeah, it's 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 pretty novel idea. It is novel, and I'm not ashamed to say it also comes with inherent difficulties. So, um, particularly with the blood, because because um, spillage, it, it just it, it opens up the door to so much. Uh, you know, ac accidental a accidents. Uh, yeah. A few, a few years ago, the American bishops had to publish something because lay people were receiving communion in their hand, 
than taking the host to someone who is distributing the precious blood, taking the host, dipping it in the chalice, oh, gosh. and then putting it in their mouth, and the bishops have to say, stop it. Stop. <laughs> if, if one drop of precious blood falls to the ground, remember, each particle, each drop is all of Christ. Yeah. It's all of Christ. And so the beautiful thing about studying ancient rite like we're doing is embedded in this ancient rite is already this sort of coherency of, of love around the sacred body of our Lord. You can't get through these rites without seeing the type of care that goes around yeah. the chalice, the pattern, the hosts, on the priest's account once it's consecrated. It's truly our Lord. It's God Himself. And so that's why we wanted to focus here. And, you know, I thought it was very reassuring to have the bishops accept the thing that was happening. So, um, anyway, I can go on and on forever. I don't want to take your night. But you've got a question right here. Yes, sir. This young scholar. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about when the Italians went up to the Eucharist and received the wine. They would lift their hands so then there are no crumbs with the Eucharist. There you go. There you go. The, the consistent, yeah, exactly. That's that's what you have to do. It's why it's so important. Um, that's why we have, as Mike was saying, that's why we have received on the tongue for so long in the old mass is because it, it guarantees that those crumbs aren't good. The priest knows where the crumbs are, if you will. He can see it. And he knows that you're going to consume our Lord. And he also, you know, the, the, the altar board comes by with a pat as well underneath your chin, you know. So there's, there's layers of protection that we don't lose any of those precious crumbs. Um, it's very important. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that anecdote. Appreciate it. Um, Good. I am. Uh, we are on. Uh, we are on the, uh, the people's communion now. Um, so our priest ends with. He ends his own communion by saying "Sanguis Domini Nostri Jesu Christi," like we said. Then he um, uh, will go to the tabernacle, and while he's going to the tabernacle, you'll hear the altar boys. They begin saying the Confiteor. Again. Now, when did we say the Confiteor the first time? Then I remember what part of the mass did, we, did the altar boys say the Confiteor? At the foot of the altar, thank you. So right at the beginning of Mass, they've said the Confiteor, I confess to Almighty God, etc., etc., going through all the saints. Remember we talked about that? Um, they do it again at a, high, at a solemn high Mass, which we have on occasion, hopefully more frequently, uh, which is the best way to celebrate Mass. Um, the deacon, the subdeacon, will flank the priest at the altar, and they'll turn towards each other, and they'll chant the Confiteor. It's pretty awesome. You'll see it sometime. Um, we'll try to tell you when the next solemn high mass is. It's, you know, you, for a solemn high mass, you need a, a deacon and a subdeacon, um, and those can both be priests. It can be anything you know above those ranks that can be those ranks. Uh, but the, it's so cool when you see it because they turn and they sing and it's so powerful. And all the altar boys are there in front of them, and the, and the, and the subdeacon and the deacon take care of it while the celebrant. The Confiteor chanted by the deacon something in the high mass. I immediately thought of the ancient Eastern painting of the three angels. Yes. 
uh, on the field of memory. And yes. Two of them are bowing towards the center. It, 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 the liturgy. Yes. It, it entirely. It's, There's a. It's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like it's like it's like this is Zeffirelli's film. Yeah. Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. <laughs> Through that whole movie, he suddenly the movie just stops. He has, he's still brainchild. He's a master. They're like little paintings. It stops, and that moment, and I yeah. aspect of fear. It's because they're all vested in the same similar ways, it's and intense. and they turn in towards each other. It's also it also it's also Elijah, Moses, and Jesus on on uh, on on the mount in the Transfiguration. You'll see it. It's a powerful image. Actually, the solemn high mass is amazing because it, it's how you should see the mass because they they move in threes together the entire time and they're so it's so rich. But that particular moment when they're turning into each other, it does look like that that icon, that Russian icon uh, of of the two angels, the three angels in the fields of Mamre. Um, so cool, great stuff. Um, good. Um, so usually communion, um, you know, a priest w- would uh, have consecrated the ciborium, you know, with a, a full of hosts at mass. But also a lot of times he, he uh, most of the time he opens up the tabernacle, right? And there's already hosts in the tabernacle that have been consecrated. And that's what we as the people commune. Um, now we have a funny church because the altar is way in the front and the tabernacle stayed way behind. They should be together, right? And so... Lord willing, with our uh, sanctuary restoration, we're going to bring the altar back to those three steps in the very back and put it right under the tabernacle. Because if you go to a church that has that traditional form, you'll see it's really it's very smooth. The priest is celebrating communion, and he just pulls back the curtain or opens the door of the tabernacle and grabs this, this, uh, another saborum full of consecrated hosts that were consecrated at another mass, and it just keeps on going on. And it's sort of this image of the eternal sacrifice of the mass, right? It's like the grace, you never, you never waste any grace. It's always, the, the altar is constantly providing for you. It's very beautiful uh, to see the altar and the tabernacle. They're one and the same. In, in the older mindset, they thought of those two, the tabernacle and the altar, as, as all part of the same thing. The tabernacle is a part of the altar. Uh, but now Father has to do the long walk, which is good. It's good for them. <laughs> Go all the way up. Uh, I know it's humbling for them to walk all the way up the stairs, grab the tabernacle, and then come back. Uh, with the hosts, but um, usually they'd be bent, bent together. Uh, good. And again, also to speak of why the altar boys say the confiore again, it's another, uh, it's another one of those themes that we've gone through in this class a lot, which is the church gives you so many opportunities to get rid of that venial sin, right? I mean, it's, it's again, it's, it's uh, the beginning of the Mass, it's the holy water, it's the asparagus made, it's the confiore, at the beginning you're praying all through Mass, and then again, it's like, it's, it's the church's understanding and the wisdom that there's a chance you've been distracted during Mass. There's a chance you've been in the bathroom with your kid or in the back during Mass. There's a, ki- there's a chance uh, that something has gone, you know, that you've, your mind has wandered off. And so again, it's this final opportunity to say, look, here's the formula of the church for absolving your sin. Kaboom. Get it done one more time. Now you're ready to receive. She gives you so many opportunities, so many opportunities through Mass. And then even, of course, in your own private prayer, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Done earnestly, that forgives your venial sin. Uh, they want you to be as pure, the church wants you to be as pure as possible, as pure as possible, to be a pure as possible vessel in receiving our Lord. She gives you many opportunities. Good. So then, uh, Father turns, he again says St. John's declaration, Etchean you stay, and communion begins, and we begin filing up towards the altar rail. Now the altar rail is often called, as Father calls it, the people's altar. It's called the people's altar, because it's there that we offer our hearts 
uh, and we receive our Lord. And it's very, the, the construction of the altar, you can see that too. It's a big marble slab, right? Just like the altar. And I want you to think of when you go up to communion uh, at the altar, I want you to think of it as that is where heaven and earth meet, right? It is where God descends and or you ascend to meet him, right? It's both of those actions at the same time. In, in God's descent, it's also an ascension of us into heaven. Uh, it takes place at that place. That's, that's the line where heaven and earth meet, where they kiss. Um, and while this is all going on, the choir in the back of the church is singing the communion antiphon. And again, the communion antiphon is one of those proper parts of the Mass, the parts that change with every week, right? And so I, uh, just to give us a sense of that communion antiphon, um, I, I wrote out this week's for us. So this is for Advent 4. Uh, and it comes from Isaiah 7.14, so prophecy, right? We're in Advent, so much is prophecy. Ecce virgo concipia de parli et filium et vocabitur nomen eius This is a very familiar text to you. Ecce, what does ecce mean? Right? You hear this again and again through the liturgy, through the scriptures. Ecce, behold, right? This is ecce anus dei, behold the Lamb of God. Ecce homo is what Pilate says during... Um, our Lord's trial, behold the man, ecce homo. Um, and again, behold, what is virgo, anybody? Virgin, concipiet. Can you think of, what does that sound? Conceive, shall conceive, et pariet, you know what that is? Pariet, bear, to bear, to bring forth, like in birth, childbirth. Pariet, filium, what is filium? Son, behold, a virgin shall conceive, and bear a son. Et vocabitor, what does that sound like? Vocabitor, what does that word sound like in English? Vocabulary, what is it? Word, speak, yes. Et vocabitor, he shall be named, or his name shall be, no man, his name shall be called Emmanuel, right? It's one of the perennial prophecies of, of Advent, right? And so, the exciting thing, Advent 4 is my favorite Sunday in all of Advent because the proverbs are beautiful. You listen for them on Sunday. Look in the translations. The opening one is Rorate Cheli, which is uh, drop down you do from heavens. Uh, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful prophecy as well. It's rich, rich. But we're, we're getting, this is so exciting. You know, the, the light has been dim at the beginning of Advent and now the hope that we're waiting for is becoming more and more clear. But now I want you to see the wisdom of the ancients in this. Take this proper, take this communion, and think about it through the lens of Holy Communion, right? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, right? We see the son in front of us, right? He is hidden by the accidents of, of bread and wine, right? But he is before us. He is being conceived before us in a certain sense, right? And it's the virgins, it's the fruit of that, of that virginal womb. It's a pure sacrifice. And this is what we've been preparing for this entire time through the Mass, is to receive our Lord as pure vessels, right? This, this, is, the, this is where you have to begin thinking liturgically. You, you meditate on this communion antiphon as you receive our Lord, right? And his name shall be called Emmanuel, right? The Savior. Isn't that awesome? So this is the, kind of, this is the beauty of the church. This is, where, this is a, a communion proper which is very explicit in its Eucharistic language, right? At least I think. Uh, layers upon layers. Good. So that's going on the whole time while you're receiving communion, and we'll sing a couple, uh, we'll sing a, the antiphon a couple times, and we'll intersperse it with communion verse, with verses from the psalm, from some psalms. 
Uh, and we'll sing that, and then we might sing some other things uh, other than that. And then after the people commune, the priest goes back to the altar, and now he purifies the chalice. So um, he actually drinks it. Uh, I want to look at my note. I want to make sure I get this right. So he's already drunk it once, right, as he communed. Now he drinks it a second time. New wine is poured into the chalice. Uh, and then the priest drinks the new wine and the old wine, because just to make sure that all of that, the, the consecrated wine is out of the chalice. So he drinks it a second time, mark that. First time with Holy Communion. Then at the cold ore, which is at the bottom of... Um, this is in the middle of 22, everybody, the middle of 22. Quod ore sumsimus, that prayer. Into a pure heart, O Lord, may we receive the heavenly food which has passed our lips, bestowed upon us in time, may it be the healing of our souls for eternity. All right? So this is the second time the priest is drinking the wine. He is praying this prayer. All right? And then after that, he's wiping out the chalice after drinking the wine. And this idea, we talk about it, into a pure heart, it makes me think of, um, uh, of Mark 2. Everyone turn to Mark 2. Mark 2. And we're starting at verse 19 of the second chapter of Mark. And Jesus said to them, can the children of the marriage fast as long as the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. No man sews a piece of raw cloth into an old garment, otherwise the new piecing taken away the old, and there is made a greater rent. And no man puts new wine into old skins, old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the bottles, and both the wine will be spilled. And, and, the, and the skins will be lost. But new wine will be put into new wine skins. All right? So this, it's, it's again, um, yes, question in the back. Um, so you talked about the pouring, like, the, the wine into the chalice. Yes. Like, to me, it just seems weird that they would pour just wine into the chalice. Into Christ's blood? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? They're using it as a, um... Mike, what are your thoughts on that? And to, yes, he drinks all of it. Yeah, he drinks all of it. So this, it's, it's. You have a good point in saying if there's any remnant left, um, it's odd that he would, you know, commingle regular wine with Christ's blood. But it's like to the best of the priest's ability. I mean, the, the, the wine that you can visibly see is totally out of the chalice. He's drunk all of it. He drink, and you can see him. He really takes his time with it. I mean, he makes sure all the drips are out and stuff like that. And so it's sort of like it's a way of cleansing the chalice with that which is supposed to be in it, which is wine, right? Well, well consider what wine is. And consider where we first see wine in Jesus' ministry. Yeah, the wedding at Cana, right? Consider... Consider where we find wine for a wedding feast in the book of Revelation. Yes. Wine isn't just wine. If you could see it symbolically here, we need to see it symbolically. Because his communion's over, we're getting ready to communion the lady, so he's washing and cleansing. Wine is the best of the best. Yeah. Wine, wine is our Lord came 
to recapitulate all things in himself. Yes. It means to establish all of creation under him the head. That's what recapitulating, copycat his head. So this notion of the best of the best being used in the mass is this outward sign to us that he has accomplished all things. Yeah. It wouldn't make any sense to use something lesser. Yeah. Only the greatest is used. Only the best is is now gonna be used to cleanse. And so only the best shall be used to wash such a chalice, to cleanse such fingers. And you only can use wine to cleanse that which was in it already. It's an, it, an elevated uh, wine in, in, in scripture is divinized. It has a sense of divinity to it. it it's, it's what God chooses to wet, I mean, to, to appear to us in, right? Just like bread, right? Both, both play huge roles in Holy Scripture. And so it's a great question. A great, great question. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it has to be cleansed with that which it was. And um, I, I that's, heard a priest one time talking about the wedding in Cana. He said, creation, creation was waiting with such anticipation for our Savior that when the waters finally saw him, they blushed. <laughs> that's great. And, and uh, I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. That's great. That there was such a longing, even in creation itself, waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and this is why I think this passage from Mark is beautiful too, because it begins with this Eucharistic language of the children of the marriage, uh, with the bride, as the bridegroom is with them, the marriage feast, right? It goes back to that wedding at Canaan language. And then he speaks too about, um, I feel like this is one of the passages when he's talking to the crowds that they don't really get. He's just kind of going off in the sacramental language that we understand now through the eyes of the church. Um, but then he goes into, and no man can put new wine into new wineskins. It's also referring to our heart, right? It's referring to us as vessels in receiving Holy Communion as well. And this is why the, the, the Mass has a, very, has a sanctifying effect on us as we go through the whole process of the Mass because now we're ready to be those new wineskins that receive our Lord. If we were sinful, if we were, if we were undeserving at the table, if you're not in the state of grace, you can't put that wine into that wineskin. It's not worthy. You have to look at through sacramental light, through sacramental language. Uh, but now at this point in the Mass, as we receive communion, as Father receives communion, and as he's cleaning up, he is, um, he's, he's praying for God for that pure heart, for that pure receptor, that he might be a pure vessel of our Lord. Um, good. And then it, at, at this point in the Mass, he also purifies his fingers. And I, did, you get into the, did you go into the fingers at all, Mike? So this is a, a point I wanted to really touch on because there's so much... So ever since the elevation, right, when Father has, um, maybe even uh, during part of the offering, during the elevation, Father has his fingers like this, all right? Two and three. Or what does that make you think of? The Trinity, right? Three is Trinity, and then two. To two natures, right? Homo, the homostatic union, right? God is both fully God and fully man. If you see art sometimes, it's the lives of the saints, they're going they're doing this a lot, Right? Because especially our Lord and Savior, you see, you see this, you see this symbol constantly with our Lord. It's a two and a three. It's also Eucharistic. But, our, but Father holds his fingers like this in the old mass from the time of the elevation all the way through the canon and all the way until now. It's a long time. He holds his fingers like this. You'll see it. Look at it. Father Ron's very good at it. He'll hold his fingers like this. And he, he's gotten very good at grabbing things on the altar with his pinkies and stuff like that. But he keeps his hands wet because they 
were in this position when our Lord became, when the bread became our Lord. And when the, so, so it's sort of like they can't be unwed from that until communion is entirely finished. Yes, Blake. Yes, I'm pretty sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Still stay. They get very good at it. They're trained. They have to. Tra- they have to practice at it. But they, it's very important. That they keep it the entire time. It's awesome, and they don't come off until he, he has to, till, till, uh, his fingers are purified. All right, isn't that awesome? So this happens at the bottom of twenty-two, when he says, "May thy body, O Lord, of which I have eaten, and the blood of which I have drunk, cleave to my inmost parts." Where do we see the word "cleave" at hazit in Latin? Where do we see that in Scripture? Manjul cleave to his wife. Yes, it's, it's, it's marriage language. Again, it's all this wedding feast, all right? And they shall become one flesh, right? It's cleaving. It hazy it, to adhere, right? You have to forget the word adhere from in Latin. It's sorry, not it hazy. Adheriat. Adheriat is the Latin for that. It's the great. Adheriat visceribus meus. Visceribus, we get visceral from. To my inmost parts. Yes, yes, as well. Vishir adheret. Isn't that awesome? So he's saying, may, this, may, this, may, this, uh, may your body and blood go to my inmost parts and never leave. And in the book of Hebrews, he, he, uh, oh God, he learned obedience by what he suffered. Yes. That's great. And do thou grant that, that no stain of sin may remain in me, whom thou hast comforted with thy pure and holy sacraments who livest and reignest the world without end, all right? So he's saying this as, as, as water and wine are being poured across his fingers, right? Because, again, you have to use that which the, what the sacrament was before it became our Lord and Savior. They use the same thing. So water and wine, again, out, out of the sight of our Lord, right, poured over his fingers, and then he can separate them, and then he can celebrate Mass as usual. Everything that has begun must be completed in the Mass. Everything that has begun must be completed. It is so good. The purification is so, so cool. It is so cool. Um, yes? Please, those are the best questions. There are these prayers that the priest is praying yeah. himself. Sure. Walter, we don't hear it. And yeah. until I started going to the Latin Mass, it's long. And yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How much of that is done in the Novus Ordo? In, where the priest is praying himself. Is he saying these same things? It, well, it, it, some, some of it, okay, so the canons, if you do the first Eucharistic prayer, Eucharistic prayer one, the canon's all there. All right, the canon's all there, so that, that we just went through, what he's doing at the altar. You hear it, right? Because they do it out loud now. Um, uh, so the canon, if, if, and Father Ron is actually very faithful about only doing Eucharistic prayer one, because he's like, it's the traditional prayer of the, of the Mass. You'll hear the whole canon that's there. Um, I wish, in terms of, what? No, but even in terms of um, the amount of genuflections, the, the amount of, the, a lot of the physical things are not there. Um, the, there are ablutions, the priest does ablutions, but th- some of these prayers are omitted um, in the new mass. It's kind of the bare essentials is the kind of the idea. Um, and that's the reality. And the reformers had their log, they had their thoughts on why they should do that, but 
again, this is this is the math that's that's that it's been this way for a long time. Those solutions have been that way for a long time, and they're very rich. So the, the church will mimic them, but the priest is permitted to say them. Yes. But very few priests are, have been formed in this mass to do it. So, so, so they can do the traditional ablutions. Yeah, they can. Ablute to wash, you know. Um, that's a great question. Yes, ma'am. I think it's neat how some of the newer priests are really clinging to the old way. Absolutely. And it's so Oh, it's powerful. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Father Dominic will do that. Father Ron will do it too, because they because they they have a yeah they have a, they have a, they have an affection for the old form and um, and they realize that you lose so much of the. We believe as Catholics that they're both valid. So our Lord is on the altar regardless of what mass you're celebrating, and so these things are safeguards. They're safeguards to the, to the, for both the celebrant and for us. To say, look, look, this is Jesus on the altar, our Lord and Savior. And you, you have to understand that reality. Lex Gridin, we are our rights, right? What we pray is what we believe. And so um, these things are safeguards for priests. They're not extra. They're not, you know, ornamentals. They, they form the priest to, to reverence our Lord on the altar. I mean, Father Ron talked about that a couple weeks ago. He's like, you know, when you, through the canon, you do this about, you know, you do five of these over the... Over the uh, over the over the over the gifts like you know three or four times you're doing this constantly you get the point eventually that like this is and you're doing this constantly and this constantly you get the point that this is the sacrifice of our lord that it's a suffering it's the crucifixion you get it smack 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 you read the old form and you realize like it, it they're really not it's it's pretty explicit you know i mean they're not like cutting any corners here it's sort of like look have you gotten the point yet have you gotten the point yet have you gotten the point yet right i mean it's so much repetition. So much repetition. It's the greatest teacher, right? Repetition is the greatest teacher. Um, the right you're studying is the most venerable, most ancient right of all of Christianity. Yeah. So even the Eastern rites, which are, have venerable usage yes. of ancient, are not as ancient or as venerable as this right. And this, the right you are looking at, in its essential entirety, is already crystallized by the end of the first century. Yes. It is formally crystallized, you can say for, for certainty, by the fourth. But its, it's direct usage goes back to St. Peter and Paul. Yeah. And, and the writing that expresses that, Peter and Paul are not just mentioned because they're, they're the, the, the pillars of the church, but the, the right itself is connected to and yeah. we, we, we can't forget that. And so I think some of these younger priests, there's a revival of the church yeah. that is not, there's a, a, there's a really fancy word. It's called antiquarianism. It's actually a heresy. It's condemned by the church. And it's this notion that you always have to go back to the earliest time yeah. and pull the liturgy apart. And, go, and it, get back to where it was before we had any essential form. Where it was pure. And, and the church condemned that as a heresy because it it sins against the Holy Spirit. And that what, what the church received from Christ, it, the Holy Spirit, that it, Jesus said, the Spirit will lead you into truth. And so these realities took form in these, these rites by the power of the Holy Spirit. Over thousands of years. Yeah, so yeah. It, it really matters when, when these young priests want to sort of retain this. They're not anti-Quarian. They're not just 
wanting to go back and do something traditional. They're wanting to maintain a sense of consistency, yeah. a sense of longevity. They want to maintain the tradition. And yeah. um, it's good to put that in perspective because this is, even the, even the Easterners, this is the most venerable of all the liturgical rites of the church. I, I read a, um, I read a, an article once by a liturgical scholar who um, talked about how since the priest is required to do so much in the old mass, so many rubrics, so much physical motion, so much um, navigation of a missile, you know, in terms of having to understand how liturgy is structured and everything, he says that it's a form of like, it's like a form of the, the priest being like, a, he's a slave to the right, right? He's a slave to the mass. But it was brilliant because he talked about how it speaks to like how we are slaves to Christ, right? And being slaves to Christ, we are, we are free. That's the paradox of St. Paul. This is a theme St. Paul talks about all the time. Like you are slaves to Christ and therefore you are free as opposed to being slaves to sin, right? Where we have a false sense of freedom. And they said in the, in the priesthood, in their sacrifice of the mass, celebration of the mass, being bound to celebrating all of these rules and rubrics, it actually makes the man free because he doesn't have to worry about himself imposing himself into the mass. It's, you know, the beautiful thing about that is even if you have a, you know, you know, mediocre preacher or even a mediocre priest, he's still bound to celebrate the mass this way and the sacrifice is always going to be beautiful that way and it forms the mass of priests regardless as opposed to the hard thing about the new mass because it, 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 in the name of antiquarianism, in the name of saying we have to go back to a simpler, a simpler mass from a simpler time, whatever that means, uh, the difficult thing about it is it gives the priest, I think, too much freedom. And so we let's turn the altar around and see the priest's face. And then Father can talk to us during Mass. And we just get a lot of the priest's personality. And we may love the priest. He may be a great priest. But his, the priest is not the point. I mean, he's, the, he's in person of Christy. So we really like the priest because we like Christ's personality, not his own personality, you know. And you see Christ's personality in the rubrics of the Mass. So I'm going to keep going uh, to allow time for... Um, to allow time for questions. Um, so, after this, so after the ablutions uh, occur, Father makes sure he, he drinks uh, during, the, um, during the corpus tuum where he uh, puts the water and the wine over his fingers. Again, it again goes back into the chalice and he drinks it a third time. So our, once again, three. The priest lifts the chalice to his lips three times. Three times. First for communion. The first time when he's purifying the, the paten. Second time, I mean, and the third time at this prayer when he's, when he's purifying his finger, fingers. Um, then we go, he goes to the epistle side of the altar, the south side of the altar, and he prays the post-communion prayer, which again is one of the propers of the Mass. It parallels the collect from the very beginning of the Mass, meaning, meaning a collective, it's one of the three collects of the Mass, meaning a collective prayer which collects all of our own individual prayers into that theme, the locus of what we're celebrating at the Mass. So you'll listen for that. When you, I don't remember what the post-communion is for Advent 4, but it's about our reception of the heavenly gifts, about the coming of the Lord, things like that, themes like that. And then we get to this very mysterious phrase in the Mass, the ite misa est. Ite misa est. The word misa, where have we seen that before? Misa in Latin. A missile, right? What is a missile? What is a missile? Don't you like a hand missile? Don't you have a missile? Not like, but a missile. It's got the mass. It's the book of the mass. From the word misa, from, where's my marker? 
ite misa est. This word we get in English, mass. Did you ever wonder what the mass meant? What, is, what else is a mass in English, right? It's okay, it's a, it's a weight term, right? It's a, or a density term, whatever you would say. It's a mathematical term. But mass is, is a bastardized form of misa in Latin. So we get the entire name for everything we've just done from like the last sentence of the mass. And why is that? Well, it's a great question. We're still trying to answer it. And the medieval had a heyday with it. So literally, it means go. Ite is go. It is sent. That's probably, or, or um, uh, mass is sent, or this is the dismissal. Kind of, there's many different translations. I wrote a couple down. Uh, go, it is sent. Go, it is the dismissal. Because misa kind of means like the, 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 the sending. Like, think about a missile, actually. Or think about, um, oh, there's a word in English I can't think of that's like sort of like a missionary. Duh, a missionary. The missionary is one that is sent. If you go on a mission, you are being sent somewhere, right? That's where we get that word from. It's, it's the verb to kind of go, to be sent. Um, and then also, Durandus, who I love, medieval scholar, kind of said, go, the mass is, as well. So the mass remains. So it's, it's got like many different meanings but why do we get the word mass from Misa, which is something that, that is sent, right? What is being sent? The people. What also is being sent? I heard it. Christ, Christ right? Christ, and where is Christ being sent? In his members, right? In his members. Who are his members? All of us, right? Also the priest, right? There's this constant idea of, like, we talked about this before, that our Lord shall return the same way that he left, right? So his ascension is also his return. And so there's this idea that we're being not only called out into the world uh, as mis- as mi- on a missionary mission, on an evangelical mission, that is true. We're also temples, we're vessels. We've just become new wineskins through the mass. A new wine has been poured into us. And therefore we have to send, we have to carry that wineskin without spilling it, wine without spilling it, right? We have to carry that grace without perverting it. But also like... Um, and that Christ is being sent in us, we are as his temples. But it's also, I, I love this interpretation of go, the mass is. Because just to tie back to what we talked about at the very beginning of this, of, this, of, this mat, of this class on the mass, is that the mass is eternal, right? The mass is outside of time. And so we're being sent into time from the space outside of time. And the mass is constantly going on and constantly being celebrated on the heavenly plane, right? Along with the angels. And so... We're taking this reality of timelessness into our very lives. And so we, our whole life should be assumed into that mass. So when we wake up in the morning, when you hear the church bells, when you do everything in your life, every, every sacrifice, every joy, every difficulty, every sorrow is being brought up and assumed into the mass. Your life becomes the mass and it becomes perfected in this, in this final phrase. Isn't that cool? It's, 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 a, it's a weird phrase in Latin. And it's been a mis- and, it's been, and it actually goes back to like, I just read something about this today when I was doing my research for this, is that it goes back to like the, in the early sacramentary, so like the third, second, third, fourth century, we have this as a dismissal in the Western Rite, ite misa est. And everyone, ever, all the medievals had a heyday with it. Like I said, they loved it because they're like, what the heck does this mean? You know? Yes, sir. Yes, yes, exactly, I am. It's eternal. 
It is. The Mass is. The Mass is. Go. The Mass is. And they also, that's very good. Practically, also, there's a theory that Fortescue talks about where, um, you know, historically, you'll actually see a line about it. Uh, this is on page 23. It says, in Masses where the glory in Excelsis was not said, this is actually no longer applicable. This is a slightly order, older ordo than what we currently celebrate in the, in the current version of the TLM. 99% of it's applicable, or the same, but we actually don't do this anymore. But back in the day, uh, the Ite Misa Est was only said during festal days, so like days that aren't penitential. So during Lent and Advent, you wouldn't have the Ite Misa Est. And the idea there was that people or, or the religious would stay and pray after Mass. They either do hours, they do devotions, and so the whole idea was that they didn't need to be dismissed because they weren't actually going anywhere. But on festal days, they didn't. They 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 wanted to, you know, it, they weren't immediately going to go into another prayer service of penitence, of, of penance after mass, and so kind of like go get out of church, you know, <laughs> like go go enjoy your uh, you know feast day. That kind of that idea, um, go in ascent. Um, so anyway, that's that's just something to think about. It's it's um, there's many 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 uh, meanings for that. Um, and up until the 12th century, mass stopped here, all right? So if you had a pontifical mass, and you had seven candles on the altar and the bishops there, the acolytes would carry the candles and they'd, they'd off the altar and they'd, take the, they'd lead the bishop back into the sacristy at this moment. So that kind of is another idea of like the mass is being sent. Mass ended here. Then with time, there were these devotional prayers that followed mass that began to be codified and eventually they just became part of the mass. They were so commonplace in Europe that when Pius V was codifying the traditional Latin Mass, he just included them into the Tridentine Mass. And so this is everything beyond here is those codified prayers which are now a part of our Mass. So the first one is the, is the, the, the Placiat Tibi, which is in the middle of page 23. May the lowly homage of my service be pleasing to thee, O most holy Trinity, and do thou grant that the sacrifice which I, all unworthy, have offered up in the sight of thy majesty may be acceptable to thee, and by thy loving kindness may avail to atone to thee for myself and for all those for whom I have offered it up, through Christ our Lord. Amen. That, um, again, we're invoking the, the Trinity. We're leaving Mass, and we once again invoke the Trinity because the entire Mass has been about the Holy Trinity, like we've said, if you haven't gotten that point yet. Um, and he pretty much, he expresses the entire statement that he needs to have as a priest sacrificing the Mass which I, all unworthy, have offered up in thy sight of thy majesty. And then what does he do? He turns right around, and we all kneel, and he blesses us in the name of the, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He gives us a great Trinitarian blessing. When he gives that blessing, what I often think of it is that lovely line from Song of Songs, from Song of Solomon, from um, the, uh, where is it? The eighth, the eighth chapter. Put me as a seal, set me as a seal upon thy heart. That blessing for me that Father received from Father is one of the most efficacious blessings I ever receive, right? Because I'm so prepared to receive that blessing because I've just received my Lord, right? My heart is ready. Set me as a seal upon thy heart. That's what, I, that's what comes to mind when I think about that, that final blessing that Father gives. It's that, that, that final reassurance that what you have, I'm protecting with this blessing. That God within you, I'm sealing him. I'm setting that seal upon him as a blessing. Don't break that seal. That's the final blessing. Um, and then we get to this extraordinary devotional practice, which is now part of our Mass, called the Last Gospel. And so Father makes the great journey again to the other side of the altar, and he reads the first chapter of John. Now, what does the first chapter of John parallel in the Scripture? What other scriptural passages is it similar to? 
in the Genesis, right? They both begin with um, in the beginning. In the beginning. So we're now on the, we're on the very last page, the 24th page. In principio, right? In the beginning. This is how the world was created. And this John, the, great, the greatest of all theologians, I would say, well, maybe Paul, the two together, um, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? This is, so Father reads the entire, this entire section from the first chapter of John, which begins the entire very Eucharistic, very, very liturgical gospel of John. Um, and there's really not whole much to say except for the gospel of John itself. It, it, summates the enti- it summarizes the entire mass in that chapter, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Again, the Mass is. It always has been, in a certain sense, right? Going down, in Him, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. We think about the Kyrie at the beginning of Mass, how it's blind Bartimaeus reaching out, Lord have mercy. And then what happens? The glory in Excelsis Deo, the light shines, and the light grows and grows and grows until we get to the Gospel, until we get to the elevation, Right? The light shines in the darkness. And then there was a man from God. His name was John. John, the great forerunner. John the Baptist. Etche on you stay, right? The entire mass is in this chapter. And so it's, it's again, the church, it's like, it's like the greatest epilogue ever written, right? We think of it as a prologue. It's called the prologue. But the mass uses it as an epilogue to the entire thing. So again, in, in ending, we begin again. Um, but as many as received him, this is near the bottom, to them he gave power to be made the sons of God, to them that believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Can something ever be, what Eucharistic language, right? It's again, as we are leaving church, as we are just being dismissed from church, it is the idea that we, are, we have been adopted again as sons of God. We are, being, we are, we are, we are bound in, to, by duty to him as sons of God. We are his children and then we all kneel, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word just visited us, and so we kneel one final time, uh, full of grace and truth. And then we end with Deo gratias, right? That final exclamation of Eucharist, of Evcaristo, right? Of, of, thanks, of thanksgiving, right? Deo gratias. And then we proceed out just as we came in, and that which began has been ended. And that is the Mass. <laughs> so there you go. Um, like I said, Mike and I did our, uh, we thank you for taking this class. Um, it ended up being nine, nine weeks, including the Requiem week, which is a very holy number. So it's better than ten weeks, nine. It's good. Like the ninefold Kyrie uh, and the nine choirs of angels. Um, we surely exhausted nothing uh, in the Mass, but at least we hope we equipped you to um, explore this for the rest of your life and to begin looking at what happens at Mass and to pray through the Mass in a new light. Um, if I can make a shameless plug, um, the, one of the greatest ways to experience the Mass is to sing it. And so if any of you have any interest whatsoever in singing, uh, I, I actually, there's, and actually in exploring the Mass even more, I, I can't help but say join a choir. We have a, a, a choir that sings for the 9.30 Mass and a choir that sings for the 11.30 Mass. And if you're interested, please let me know, or Mike, uh, he'll send them to me. Uh, it's the greatest way to experience the liturgy outside of celebrating it, I truly believe. The choir plays an integral part in the Mass. I've talked about it a lot in the Holy Dialogue between the priest and the people, which is the priest, the Christ and his people, which is between the priest and the choir. Um, so if you have any interest in singing, please let me know. It's a wonderful way to experience the liturgy. Um, 
I want to open this up to any questions whatsoever, and Mike and I will tag team. Yes, Darren? So you, you gave your closing comments and your pitch. Yeah. I don't have odds on the right word, I don't know. It strikes me as interesting that the last gospel takes place after the eating is at us. Yes. So why is that? We just got done saying we're finished. Yeah. Go. But wait. But wait. Right. So can I go oh yeah, feel free. So that that reading is a direct relationship to that proclamation. Right? Yes. Go the masses. So there's we we can't forget that when Christ became incarnate, he remains incarnate. Where is he incarnate? In his members. Yes. And who offers the mass now? The pre his whole body. And so this this reading, while well, it is a summation of the mass that Jonathan said, is also a reminder to us that he is incarnate in his members. Yes. He's incarnate. What just what we just celebrated is actualized truly in our life. And as laity, we actually, it's not figurative. We don't do this figuratively or symbolically. You have become a temple of the living God. And therefore, your presence on earth is equal to Christ's. Yeah. It is no longer I who live it, but Christ who live it in me. God yes. the mass is. And so this carries into your daily work, the work of the laity, yeah. the work of God, the work of offering up your day, your trials, your sufferings. Christ is incarnate. Because in doing so, you're actually offering you're offering the mass on a certain level. That, yeah, you're, it's, it, you've been given you've been given divine power because Christ is working through His members to do that. Practically speaking. Uh, like I said, it, this was all de- it was all devotional material that was codified, and then it just eventually just made its way into the mass. That's why it comes after the fact. But I think it was once again, like Mike said, it was God's providence to bring it into the mass. I know it's God's providence to bring it. Absolutely, it was to bring it into the mass because it, it, it not only is it a summation, it's a it's a declaration of what you're called to do, which is to be the word. Ma- the word became flesh among every on the world, right? Christ and His members. It's also, this, this probably is a- yeah. But this is something I reflect on. This sort of, yeah. and the word became flesh and blood among us at this point in Matthew. It is a total and complete repudiation of the Protestant notion of grace. It is an absolute rejection that somehow God's grace is only extrinsic upon us. Yeah. And that God and His love for us doesn't actually assume us into Himself, yes. give us our life. Demons from the inside out. The moment from now on that you make that genuflection and the word became flesh, remember. Remember that you're not a joke. Remember that you're not something God closed over and never not wants to look at you again. Remember that in that communion, He reigns in you. Yeah. He sanctifies you. And it is, I don't know if that was that was probably never in the mind of the church. But because Christ is truth himself, it's impossible not to realize that. that yeah. We are truly living. We're living. It's also, it's also profound because it was the, the first time it was codified in the Mass was that Trent, the Council of Trent, which was the great repudiation of the Protestant heresy. Yes. Uh, and so it, to, to fact that like 
even those Protestant groups that took our liturgies to a certain extent, this was something that just rem- it was it was a signifier of that that reality explicitly in the Mass that Christ dwells among us, in us, through us. And and uh, and also ecclesiologically, it's also profound. You know, remain in me and I in you. Like there's only one body. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I think it's that beautiful part of the mass. It's such a beautiful part of the mass. It, uh, yeah. That was great. Cheers. Any any other questions? Yes, sir. Mike, you got this. It's an RCA question. What's, what's the question. So why did, why did Adam and Eve get banned from the garden? Wouldn't God know that they already had sinned? Yes, but man is also free. So you have the power to choose, right? So just because God knows everything does not mean you still have the power to choose. And when you choose in the wrong way, like a loving father, there has to be a consequence. Have you ever made a choice where your father has to discipline you? Yes. <laughs> your father knows that you're not perfect already. Your own dad already knows you're not perfect. He knows that you'll make some mistakes and make bad choices, but because he loves you, he loves you enough to discipline you. And Adam and Eve needed discipline too. Their Heavenly Father loved them enough, even though he knew that they would make mistakes or make a wrong choice. He loved them enough to discipline them. Why? Because he wanted them to be with you forever. He wanted to see them on their own come to realize their wrongs. That's how, that's how much God loves us. Even though he knows, he, he loves us enough to discipline us. Nice. Is that all? Any other questions? Anything at all? Liturgy. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I. We actually next next time we teach. This is a great book. Um, but we have so we have these at mass. If you go to the eleven thirty mass, we have so we have these and we have the leaflets at the church. Mass, what I make. Uh, so this will have all the parts of the mass that remain the same. All the ordinary. And then my leaflets have all the propers of the Mass, so those things that change with every week. And so with the two of these, you should be able to get through the whole Mass. This is an important research uh, resource. Um, St. Augustine Press also makes a book. It's a, it's a, it's a larger book. Yeah. It's put out by St. Augustine Press. Yeah. And it's on the traditional Mass. Yeah. And it's, it's exhausted, and it's, um, it's high gloss. Yeah. It covers the calendar. It covers... The Jewish roots covers. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. It's it was made for children, but I'm telling you, it's made for adults. It's, it's that, there's, that good. There's also um, what would be practical, like is the um, Baronius Press puts out a um, a hand missile for the traditional Latin Mass, and they're beautiful leather-bound books um, that you can just bring the Mass with you and. Um, they, you can get through the whole. I mean, they're, they're, they have everything that you ever need, whoever would need. But they also have a lot of things like um, prayers for communion, prayers for um, at the offertory that you can pray yourself that begin to get you into sort of the things that we were teaching. You know, like 
when the priest does this, this is what you, this is a thing that you can pray in order to unite yourself to the priest more and get you into the, to grow that sacramental imagination that we're trying to develop. So that's a very, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's Baronius Press, or Beretta Books, one of them does, um, Bromi Beretta Books does the, uh, you can just look it up, look up, um, you can look up traditional Latin mass hand missile or, or 1962 hand missile, you can look that up. Um, and there's a ton of websites. If you just want to even grow in your um, knowledge of just like your interest in this world, um, there's a website called New Liturgical Movement, newliturgicalmovement.org. Um, and um, there are a bunch of um, liturgists and musicians and artists and all types of individuals that post fascinating articles on the liturgy. And they're... Um, What's great about them is that their whole point is just to, to show the riches of, of the rites, both West and East. And uh, whether it's uh, recordings of beautiful chant and polyphony, whether it's uh, icons, whether it's pictures of like the construction of churches and how they're constructed to be liturgical, be, the whole nine yards. It's a fascinating website. And it's not, it's not, it's not too polemical either. It's very, it just, all it's trying to do is show the riches of the tradition. I love that website. I read it regularly. It's very refreshing. It's a wonderful blog. It's more than a blog. It should be a publication, really. So. I think, too, it's important to realize at some point you can't, we can't, um, the, the mass is an academic exercise. Right. Um, no matter how hard, I think in our culture today, we want to sort of, we want to school everything to it academic categories and sort of squeeze it like an academic sponge and master it. Yeah. We have to be careful when we get in the church's liberties to put those into those categories. These are these are mysteries. These yeah. are this is ancient prayer that is articulating something that we can both have access to but at the same time always be incomprehensible. Yeah. And as Catholics we sort of have to come to that acceptance. Um, God revealed them. We can learn more about them, but we're also celebrating and praying things about God that are incomprehensible. Um, when you get educated in catechetics like I did, there's, there's a principle you learn, and it's called teaching from the rites. And it fits into a category called mysticology, or entering into a mystery. Um, and what Catholics, especially it's also encouraged to do, isn't to over isn't to go into an academic study of the churches or no. rather to just read them as they are. And and the best way to learn is to celebrate them regularly and become familiar with them. Yeah. And and if, if you do that, it's less of an academic thing and it's more of a relationship that you are you're slowly appropriating these truths in your, in your very life. That's a, that's a better way to go. So at some point, I sort of want to encourage all of you to sort of drop the books. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can't agree more. Um, yeah. and, and simply be content with encountering certain aspects of a worship and saying, I don't quite know what that is. And yeah. revel in it, wonder in it, ponder in it. And you'll see greater growth here. You'll see us. I think it's important. It's it's important to remember that um, our Lord says, "Suffer the little children to come unto me, and 
and that the child—it's through a child—it's through a child that we enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? Um, I think we need to approach the mass like children, um, in terms of how does a child learn initially? A child learns um, visually before he learns orally or verbally, right? Like when I have a, I have a two and a half year old, right, and she's very, she's getting very good at the English language, but I was able to communicate with her when she was very, very young in certain ways, and she didn't learn, she knows nothing about syntax, she knows nothing about anything like that in terms of English, but she just through exposure in our atmosphere, in our house, and the way my wife and I talk to each other, and the way we talk to her, and just through living, she picks up on this language, and we correct her here and there, of course, as we do, but we just let her live in that, and I think the outstanding feature of the traditional Latin Mass is that it teaches visually before it teaches verbally and theologically. That's before it teaches, it's not a didactic teacher. It teaches verbally. And this is why a lot of children at that mass have no problem with it. And it's a lot of us adults who came to it later in life who go, ah, ah, you know, because we get frustrated with it because we want to approach it didactically. We want to approach, if I can learn this, then, then X equals, you know, A will lead me to B, right? And it's, it's no, think about how a child sees it. He sees the Lord be, you know, being, he sees this, this, this bread elevated in the air and bells ringing and the bell, the church bell ringing and there'd be utter silence all around. And then the same thing happens with the wine and that's their first visual encounter with our Lord Jesus, right? That's their first thing. And all the bowing and the genuflections and the smells and the beauty of the church and the stained glass and the, and the weird music and the, you know, this, this whole atmosphere that's created. It's, it's a wonderland for a child, and it's a wonderland for us, but like Mike said, we need to preserve that sense of wonder because that's the correct place to start learning. So it's really good to learn um, what, what the priest is saying and to study the right, like we've done this whole year. It's good, but in some ways it's all supplemental to that kernel of mystery that we have to have when approaching the Mass. And also, and also filial trust of God that this is his Mass. This Mass has always been there. And to always remember to be good historians and say, this was the mass of the peasants, as it was also the mass of the kings of Europe, right? That the illiterate, this was their mass. And they saw nothing wrong with it. You know, they just, they, this was their mass. You know, and, um, and, and full confession, Father and me and Mike are all terrible at Latin. Like, we have no, we, like, we, I've never studied it formally. Mike, have you ever studied it formally? Greek. Greek you studied Greek, even better. But, uh, in terms of art, like we do, we are not Latin scholars. There's plenty of them in the academy that really know Latin really well, and and even your even the church has said like the, the faithful should have a you know should have a love of Latin and even an interest in learning Latin, even a working knowledge of it. I've developed a working knowledge of it from being in it, singing it, and having to teach it, like I just did with you today. This word this this word leads me to that. Latin is wonderfully symbolic in that way. It's a declined language, and not a, an analytical language. Like so, like all the Romantic languages were analytical, which means we have a very strict structure of how the language needs to be in order, and we have a bunch of little things like article adjectives and stuff that muddy up the Latin, that muddy up, muddy up the language. But look at Latin, it's like uh, exclamation, noun, verb, subject, and there's no filler. X is the only filler we have. But in that way, it's beautifully symbolic because you don't have to know that this is the nominative, you know, you don't, and this is the whatever it is. Um, you don't have to know the actual cases or to the declensions, what you can see is you can see this word and go, behold, virgin, conceive, bear, son. You can get it. They, they look, they look icons. They're, it's an icon. Just like Greeks, the same way. It's, 
you can see a word and you can see it as a little icon. And honestly, the more you live in that mass, you'll just begin to think of it that way. When Father turns and says, Ece on you stay, you're not thinking, behold the Lamb of God. You just say, my Lord and my God. You just, you just grow into it. And it comes with time and it comes through constant exposure. But that's how a child learns language. That's what I'm saying. My daughter doesn't know the, the, the case and the structure of what we're speaking, but she can respond to it because she knows its emotion. She knows how it's used. She's heard it done so many times. That's the thing, you know. It, 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 uh, it's not an academic exercise at all. It's a mystical one. It's a visual one. Uh, it's, a, it's a filial one. It really is a father giving something to his children. And I think the difficulty, if I can say this, the difficulty of the new mass with the f- emphasis that the congregation hears everything that's going on constantly, it gives you a false sense of you knowing the Mass because you really don't know the Mass. Even though you understand everything the priest is saying in English, and even though he says everything out loud, and you can see everything that he's doing constantly, you don't know the Mass. It's the mystery of God. It's a triune mystery. It's a false sense of notion of what's actually going on. You restore that mystery in the traditional Latin Mass, and you... Uh, we have to take a couple steps back and say, Lord, teach me like a child. Give me, it's a humbling, it's a humbling thing. Uh, but there's great fruit and great reward. In someone, in, uh, there's great reward for it. So anything else, anyone else? Anyone else? One more question, do you have one? What does humble mean? Oh, that's a great, humble. It means um, being absolutely in reality about a situation. That's what the saints would say. It means you know exactly where your place is. And what's my place? I am a creature that's created by the Almighty God, and I'm a sinner. And therefore, uh, I don't have a lot to work on except for God's grace. I don't have a lot to stand on except for the grace that God has given me. And that's what being humble is. It's knowing your place. Uh, and all the, you have to have humility in order to be in heaven. It's, it's required. So you'll either get it in this life or the next. So there you go. Anyway, let's pray and end for the night. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. St. Joseph. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.